Welcome to Episode 7 of EdMed Talks. I'm Dr. Adam DeVico, a career educator. And I'm Dr. Jacqueline DeVico, a pediatrician. And we're your husband-wife duo for all things parenting. Well, today we're going to talk about summer safety. And tis the season, right? School year's over, weather's getting warmer, it's time to rock and roll outside. We wanted to address this important topic today because with summer comes a lot of fun, a lot of change in routine, and with these extra activities and extra freedoms also come extra risks. And as the pediatrician-teacher duo, we wanted to teach you how to keep your child healthy and safe. So we're going to share a list of topics, not all-inclusive, of important things to remember this summer. Yeah, so our first topic today with the weather getting warmer is about sunscreen. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to admit, I am not the most responsible sunscreen wearer. It has been a long journey that Jacqueline has had to uh, work with me on to make sure I'm wearing that sunscreen. Yes, and your forehead and back of the neck sometimes pay the price for forgetting. Well, I'll tell you where that transition point really came when the hair started thinning a little bit and that scalp started getting just a little bit redder and it burned a whole lot more in in the shower. I think that was a great transition point to say, all right, maybe I need some more. And remember, children don't think about the future consequences of their actions the way that adults can. So it's really important as a parent to make sure your child is wearing sunscreen. There are two different types of sunscreen. There's the mineral sunscreen, going to be a little bit more expensive, a little harder to blend in. And those sunscreens are going to end in the word oxide, like zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. Those sit on top of the skin and those work immediately after you put them on versus the chemical sunscreens are going to be the other type. They're going to have the benzides, oxybenzos in them. Um, Those actually take about 15 minutes to really work because those have to sink into the skin to be absorbed. And so those I recommend putting on, let's say before you leave the house, if you've got a 10, 15 minute drive to the pool or before you walk out to the beach, if you're on vacation. Yeah, we've gotten better, I think, about having the boys apply it before we get to the pool or Mm -hmm. before we go outside, because I think we were getting into the situation where we'd get there and then they'd put it on. But like you said, because it requires 10, 15 minutes to really set in, well, that was a lot of time that they were... Yeah, they had it on, but it wasn't really setting in yet. True. And it's very difficult to take a child to a pool or a fun place outside and tell them, nope, you need to sit here for 10, 15 minutes before you can enjoy yourselves. And I'll tell you, most of the time I do use the chemical sunscreens for my children because they're easier to find. When it comes to sunscreen, you make sure you want to use more than you think. And typically we recommend doing the lotions over the sprays because the sprays can often miss areas of the body. And just remember that in general, teachers, school counselors, or counselors at camps, they are not permitted to apply sunscreens to children most of the time, uh, particularly in school, I'll say. And so please make sure that either your child is applying it themselves or you are doing it before they get to either camp or school or wherever they're going. And this is where something is better than nothing. Chemical sunscreens are better than nothing. Sprays, if your child is at camp and won't use the lotion sunscreen, sprays are absolutely better than nothing. So speaking of going out and uh, getting to the pool, another super important summer safety tip is going to involve just water safety. We got to make sure that our kids are always safe around water because there is no shortage of drowning stories every summer. Uh, Several years ago, our younger son, Maddox, had a really scary incident. We were at our pool, and we were just leaving for the day. 
and we packed up, we were heading out, and I think I was just saying goodbye to someone. You know, we turned our backs for half a second, and this is before Maddox knew how to swim, and he just stepped into the pool, and uh, lo and behold, there I turn around, and he's literally drowning, and we always, we, we can joke about it now because, you know, everything turned out fine, but we, we kind of joke around that we knew how important this was and how serious and scary this was because I jumped in with my cell phone still in my pocket. And if anyone knows me listening to this, my cell phone is a near and dear thing to my heart. So for me to jump in, it was serious. Yes, when children are around water, it's always important to have an adult there present who's watching them. Yes, pools have lifeguards, but lifeguards can't be watching the entire pool all at once. Also, we recommend floaties, puddle jumpers. Those things actually give your child a false sense of security. They tell your child, hey, I can float, when really no child can float. And so we recommend not using those. We recommend children being kind of within arm's touch from you in the water if they can't swim. Yeah, and actually that was what happened that day. Maddox had been in a floaty, so, you know, it's something that we kind of learned. And when he took it off, that's when he took the plunge. Yeah. I use this story a lot in the office. You know, pediatricians were not perfect parents. And this was an example of something I didn't follow the recommended directions and our child almost suffered for it. So it's, it's a good reminder that, you know, we're not perfect, but also to remind families, hey, you can always do better. Yep. So if you belong to a pool, if you go to the ocean, if you go to a river, a lake, a pond, if you, any body of water, all right, water is water. Uh, having an opportunity for your child to learn how to swim before that great opportunity if not like Jacqueline said just having an adult with an arm's reach or someone that can make sure that they stay safe in the water uh, just something really important as you go into the summer months yeah something else that picks up summertime is riding bikes skateboards etc outside yeah scooters uh, some families may have ATVs just mm-hmm. things on wheels right yeah. and Anytime you are getting on one of these types of vehicles, a helmet is something that we really, really push children to be wearing. Yes, it's very important to have a well-fitting helmet. I've had kids tell me, but I'm good at riding my bike. The better you are at a bike, a scooter, etc., that means the faster you're going, the more tricks you do, and the more likely you are to seriously injure yourself. I have a saying with patients. I say, you know, as doctors, we're really good at fixing broken arms and broken legs. Broken brains? Not so much. And I remember when I was a kid, I, I, was, a, I was a pretty good rollerblader. And there was always like this stigma around, you know, man, you're not, you're not cool if you're wearing a helmet. You know, you're not... You're not good enough if you wear a helmet and so I understand the the pressures and the peer pressures that go on I see it in schools all the time I hear it amongst the kids as they're talking but as a parent I know how important it is to protect my kid's brain yeah I can think of I have two separate teenage patients who were both in ATV accidents one um, he was riding an ATV in the woods was not wearing a helmet, flipped, and ended up spending a couple weeks in the intensive care unit uh, with a brain injury. And he's doing okay now, still has some learning difficulties. I think he still follows up with concussion clinic. Um, Have another child who she was riding her ATV. Actually, she went across the road, got hit by a car. She was wearing a proper helmet, and while she had, has had a couple surgeries on her legs, 
no brain injuries, and she's doing really well now. I think something that you said before, we just want to reiterate, is a proper fitting helmet. I know personally, I, I've worn helmets before, and they are not fitting to my head. And so, you know, if I have an accident, I crash, eh, it might protect me a little bit, but not as well as if it were actually proper fitting. So make sure, uh, going to a, a bike store, uh, they have really good uh, assistance there. And helmets are always adjustable. Helmets can fit a wide range of heads. Yeah, uh, I great story from when I was a principal in a previous district, and we actually had this really cool opportunity. There was a, a nonprofit organization out of the hospital there, the Children's Hospital, and they came over to my school because they had this initiative with helmets. And I said, that's great. I mean, feel free to come over, talk to my students about helmets. But they saw that I actually had a deaf and hard of hearing population at my school. Well, a lot of our deaf students also had hearing aids or other hearing devices. Well, most helmets don't accommodate that because they're form-fitting to the head. They, mm-hmm. they don't take into account any type of hearing device or anything that would be you know, extensions of the head. And so it was really, really cool. The lady in charge, she actually got all the way through to like the head of the hospital and made all these really cool recommendations for making helmets specifically for deaf and hard of hearing students who have either hearing aids or any type of hearing assistance technology. And uh, I'm not sure exactly if it ended up going into prototype, but she got up really high making this recommendation for uh, students who would need helmets uh, with any type of accommodations. That's really cool. You know, it's nice to hear families and organizations recognizing that there's not always a one-size-fits-all solution, and there are many children with different medical conditions, disabilities, etc., that sometimes need altered products like that. Yeah, I think having the opportunity to making sure that all students have equitable opportunities to enjoy the summer and enjoy things like riding a bike or a skateboard or a scooter in a safe way is really important. So props to that team, that organization coming out, realizing this is an opportunity out there and taking advantage of it. And when we talk about riding on bikes or other summer activities, you know, there's also falls, there's also scrapes, scab, muscle injuries. Oh yes, that's where <laughs> that's where the blood starts coming. We get all sorts of uh, fun injuries that happen during the summer because, well, kids fall, kids get hurt. It happens. Yeah. Our older son actually came home really proud of himself. Uh, one of his friends fell off his bike, and according to Ryder, he was gushing blood from his knee. And so he ran inside to a neighbor's house that he knew. Um, the neighbor's daughter was home, and so got him a wet paper towel, and he applied pressure to the wound because he remembered I told him if something's bleeding, put pressure on it. So that's, that falls under the category of tell me your mom's a doctor without telling me your mom's a doctor. He absorbed some information from you, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, so if something is bleeding, now I will be on it. So, so the first step, if you've got what's called a dirty injury. And so when I mean dirty, I mean you fall outside, you know, your wounds cut open and you're worried about bacteria or dirt or anything. And technically the first thing you really want to do is clean it off. You want to get it under some type of running water for honestly, even five, 10 minutes. And what that does is that really helps clean out all the debris and bacteria that could potentially be in there. Then if something's bleeding, that's when you really want to apply the pressure. Um, Truthfully, you want to apply pressure, I mean, five, ten minutes, even longer, depending on how serious the injury is. 
I had that just my, myself uh, not too long ago. My knee, I was playing soccer and just fell, got tripped up, nice bloody uh, knee there. And I had to do that, cleaned it out, applied pressure. So nothing too hard. But, you know, I think that's a really simple yet important thing that you can teach your kids because you're not always with them. And what a simple thing to empower them to be helpful and not freak out when they see blood. Because, yes, a lot of kids freak out when they see blood. I see it all the time in school. You know, kids have a bloody nose and they think that they have, you know, they've gotten amputated or something. And so the kids tend to overreact. They tend to over embellish these types of things. But giving them these very simple tricks can empower them to act accordingly and be helpful in a situation where they can be. A question I always get from parents is, oh, well, don't I have to put alcohol, hydrogen peroxide, something on the wound? So we actually now know that when you use agents like those, whether alcohol, hydrogen peroxide, they actually delay wound healing a little bit because they disrupt the cells that are trying to grow and make new skin. Now, with a caveat, let's say you are out in the middle of the woods, you're camping, there's no clean running water. Well, yes, you want to prevent bacteria from getting into the wound. So alcohol or hydrogen peroxide are absolutely better than nothing. But if you have access to running clean running water and soap, use that instead. It burns a lot less too, doesn't it? <laughs> it absolutely burns a lot less. <laughs> hydrogen peroxide burns. So, okay. Now this next one, this next summer safety tip that we're going to share, I had to convince Jacqueline why this is important because she was like, well, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but I promise you as a two decade long educator, I have had to come across this more times than I ever thought I would have to. And I still to this day truly don't know what to do, but it's such a common thing, especially in the summertime when people are outside and I just, I still don't know really what to do. So Jacqueline's going to help guide us through what to do when you get a bee sting. Yes. And we'll categorize, you know, bee, wasp, any, any type of flying insect with a stinger. There we go. Yeah. So, so first thing, don't panic and don't worry if your child is not allergic to bees, it is highly, highly unlikely that they will develop a severe life-threatening allergy within seconds or minutes in front of you. I think that's always the biggest fear that parents have. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you've never been stung before or your kid's never been stung before, your first question is, well, shoot, are they allergic to bees? Well, and truthfully, probably not. Typically, to develop an allergy, you need to have an exposure first. So, to be honest, most kids who are allergic to bees had moments in their lives where they were stung by bees and not allergic first. Makes sense. So if the stinger is still in place, you don't want to try to squeeze it with anything to pull it out because that will release more of whatever you call it, venom or whatever's inside of the, the bee sting into the wound. You want to use something like a credit card to kind of scrape it out if possible. All right. So scraping the, the stinger out. All right. And then what do you do to it? Treat it like a typical wound. Flush it a little bit and you're good. <laughs> Teachers always think like this is a, a small surgery you have to perform. Uh, I don't know. I think it's just not anything that we ever get trained on. I mean, we, we, we're taught to teach curriculum and instruction, but sometimes we, we turn into medical experts and definitely I'm not. 
Oh, and you might notice a good deal of swelling around the area. That does not mean your child is allergic to bee stings. Um, same thing if you notice your child gets mosquito bites and they get these really, really big welts. They're not actually allergic to mosquito bites. Not in the sense of, oh my goodness, I'm worried about anaphylaxis. I'm worried about their trouble breathing. They're just having what's called a large local reaction. And the younger you are, the more likely your body is to kind of swell and turn really red in these areas. Okay, so what if you what if you have a kid by chance that is allergic to a bee? Bee sting. Well, that's when you'd want to monitor closely and any sign of anaphylaxis, which is going to be hives popping up, which is going to be trouble breathing, which is going to be vomiting, diarrhea, or severe abdominal pains, that's when you'd want to administer their EpiPen. Now, some children are so severe that their doctors will actually advise schools to administer the EpiPen even before you notice any of those things. But in general, if you don't have that advice, then stay close to the child and monitor and look for those signs. Now, I can rock out an EpiPen. I've been trained on administering an EpiPen many, many times over the years. So I can rock one of those things. Luckily, I've never had to administer it. Uh, luckily, knock on wood. Uh, but I can do that if, if need be. And in general, and now I'm just going back to the educator perspective here, most parents have told me over the years, hey, my kid is allergic to bee stings. And I've had, I can count on my hand the number of kids in 20 years that I've actually had uh, parents tell me that. So if if you are a parent of a child that you know is allergic to bee, wasp, hornet, whatever stings, just let your teachers know, let the school know. I'm sure you're already going to have an EpiPen, so you know, have, make sure that you give that to the school. And a please helpful tip here, make sure your EpiPens are current because that schools get in trouble when they're expired and it gets kind of it gets kind of iffy when they're not renewed or if they are expired. So please make sure if your child has an EpiPen that it's current. Yeah. And I always like to tell adults, teachers, people who are not in the medical field, if you administer epinephrine or an EpiPen to somebody, you're you're not going to hurt them. And so if there's any part in your gut and your body that says, oh my goodness, I'm very, very worried about this child. They seem like they're having trouble breathing. Just administer it. It's going to shoot up their blood pressure. It's going to make their heart beat fast. Very, very short term though. You're not going to cause any long-term damage if let's say you unnecessarily give a child epinephrine or an EpiPen. All right, so another possible thing you might come across in the summer months, people are outside, you might even go camping or be in a, a grassy area. And while we stay with the bug category are ticks and tick bites. And so I know personally, I know what to look for if I see you know, a tick. I don't know what to do with it though. Yeah, so, so one thing to think about with ticks is are you in a Lyme disease endemic area? Because that's something that parents worry about. That's when we hear about tick bites, that's what we worry most about is Lyme disease. There are certain areas of the country, mostly the Northeast, um, sometimes a kind of high Midwest area that has a higher percentage of Lyme disease. If you are not in a Lyme endemic area, you really, really don't need to worry about this. Um, if a child has a tick and you notice that in their body, this is the bug that you actually want to use tweezers. You want to grab as close to the edge of the skin as possible, squeeze and pull up directly. Now there's different types of ticks 
There are dog ticks, there are deer ticks. The dog ticks are much longer. Those are not the ones that transmit Lyme disease. The deer ticks are the ones that do. And a lot of families worry when they see a tick on their child, oh my goodness, is my child gonna get Lyme disease? Well, a tick has to be attached for at least 36 hours to transmit Lyme disease. And so if you're pretty sure that that tick has not been there 36 hours, or if you are not in a Lyme endemic area, you really don't need to worry about it. If you are in a Lyme endemic area and you're worried that that tick has been there longer than a day and a half, call your doctor. They might send off a prophylactic or preventative dose of an antibiotic called doxycycline to help prevent Lyme disease. So it's a good habit just in general. If your kids play out in grassy areas, the woods, you go camping, anywhere where ticks can exist, it's just a good habit just to do a quick scan of their legs, their backs, uh, their groin area because ticks can get up in there too. Scalp. I, scalp, well. yeah, scalps as well. I uh, I was a camp counselor for a number of years and that was just something we always just gave a quick scan of the kids after they played in the grass or something like that and it doesn't take long but it's a good habit and I've fa- I have found some before and I didn't take care of them but I was able to send the kids off. Uh, but as a parent now, it's just a good habit to take a quick look after they play in those types of areas. And a disease like Lyme disease is not going to show up right away. That's going to take, you know, weeks, even up to a month to show up. And so parents often worry what to look for the day after. Uh, You're looking for weeks to a month after. You're looking for fevers. You're looking for a bullseye rash. You're looking for joint swelling. Lyme disease is not as common as I think the media makes it out to be. It's a pretty serious one, isn't it? It can be. Yes, it can be. So this next one, this next summer safety tip is something I really wanted to make sure we got across. And I see this as an educator, as a parent, but it's making sure that your child knows their address and a phone number. And I know we live in a day and age now where, you know, cell phones help us with so much stuff. I, I know I... Other than Jacqueline's phone number, I don't think I could just tell you a phone number of anyone else. But... You know, most young kids, now if you have a teenager, it's probably a little bit of a different story. They probably either know their address and phone number or you know, their cell phone can tell them. But if you have a young child, please make sure that they somehow know how to contact you. Children get lost. Children get misplaced. We were we were at, uh, we just got back today, actually, when we're recording this. We got back from a trip to Great Wolf Lodge. And what happened to that little girl? Well, I had a child who kind of came up and stood behind me and probably about seven, eight years old and seemed terrified and upset and screaming. And then another parent kind of walked over and both of us kind of made eyes and realized we didn't, neither of us knew this little girl. And so she was starting to panic and she said she lost her mom. And so we told her, take some deep breaths and we'd stay with her. And we asked her what her mom looked like. And, and I think, you know, in an area like we were inside Great Wolf Lodge, you're in one one contained area, so a cell phone or an address wasn't particularly helpful in this moment, but most of the time if a child is lost, telling an adult your parent's phone number or address would be immensely helpful. Yeah, obviously in that scenario in particular, a phone number or address wouldn't be important, but the point is kids get lost. Yes, you know, <laughs> very kid, easily. Kids lose their parents. Kids can be scared. and Kids can fall asleep on the bus and <laughs> miss yeah. their stop. Yes, that happens a lot. And kids can get off the bus in the wrong after-school program. 
yes, all those types of things happen. And luckily, in those cases, you know, it's a very contained area where we can call the school or we know how to get in touch with the parents. But in larger scenarios, if you're in a you know, larger setting, having, you know, having that kid know their address or the phone number could be, you know, the, the one thing that gets them calmer and uh, saved much more quickly than if you're just having to play guessing games. So Adam, when I think of summer as a parent, a lot of parents worry about their children academically. You know, the the term summer slide is constantly popping up. Oh my goodness, how much learning loss are my children going to do all summer? What do I need to do at home? How much reading or math or studying should they do over the summer? How much should I let them relax? So the term summer slide really refers to the amount of learning that was lost over the summer. It is generally expected by teachers that there is summer slide. So let me put that out there first. It is expected. With that all being said, it doesn't mean we should just let it happen. So as parents, there are a few things that you can do to help your child maintain their academic habits. What I would not encourage is the feeling to force your child to learn new material. They'll learn that next year. What is a better habit is keeping to routines. During the school year, your child is used to probably reading for 15, 20, 30 minutes a day. Let that continue. It's not so much the content as it is the habits. And so making sure that your child's brain is staying actively engaged in something, I'll say other than maybe screens, (laughs) (laughs) which admittedly our child, our children definitely have their fair share of screens. We're, We're admitting to that. But making sure that they still maintain habits of thinking, habits of that classroom environment that they are used to all year. That way, when they do get back to school in August or September, it's not this sudden, wow, I haven't done this in three months. It's like, uh, all right, I can still do this regularly. As we've talked earlier in prior podcasts, children thrive on routine. So it sounds like you're saying keeping some similar routine is really beneficial for the child. Yes, something is better than nothing. So you don't need to replicate school. All right, so during the summer, you don't need to recreate a schooling environment. Just making sure that their brain is engaged in some type of learning that will make it an easier transition once the new school year starts. So we hope that these tips today Uh, really give you just some thoughts about how to keep your child safe, engaged, having fun during the summertime. And, you know, we we want you to enjoy your summer, but more importantly, we want to make sure that the summer remains a time where students can and children can uh, enjoy it safely. So as we always remind parents, you know your child best. There's no such thing as the perfect parent, but you can be the perfect parent for your child.